The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is John Etherton of Etherton & Associates. And uh, John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. It's good to be back. Well, I'm looking for, as always, you've, you're a regular on the show, and it's that time of year again. We want to take a look a little bit back at what happened last year with regard to the NDAA and also look in the crystal ball, see what's, what, what's on tap for this year. So, uh, John, um, let's start with the last year's NDAA. You know, wh- what happened? How did we get there? And uh, um, what are some of the key provisions? Um, I think it was an interesting process. Uh, the president signed the bill in December, so we now have another large raft, over 80 provisions in acquisition policy by my count. A um, number of different issues. Some are issues we've been talking about for the last several years, and then there are other newer ones. Um, I think uh, some of the more interesting ones were Section 846, which set up the e-commerce portal process with GSA. It was very controversial. I think there was probably more time and attention spent on that issue uh, in Title VIII in the negotiations during conference than anything else. Um, we got a process there that I think is a more deliberate, slower process with a lot of the issues that were surfaced by a lot of the stakeholders now that are things that now have to be addressed. Uh, but it is a conversation that we're going to have, and I don't think that conversation is over. I think they'll be continuing to look at 846 and the requirements and the timelines, and there'll be efforts to try to see if that needs to be adjusted, I think, this year. Um, so that's one big issue. I think we, uh, again, navigated through some of the issues on the bid protest process, where we've got the enhanced debriefing language in the bill now, as well as the pilot program to actually test the whole loser pay uh, issue, at least for the Department of Defense, starting in 2020. Um, I think that was pretty a uh, pretty interesting development. Um, some changes in intellectual property uh, statutes, which uh, some additional clarity around what the government should be asking for and what is defined to be delivered, uh, and, and a little more focus on the software side of it, which I think is a, a leading indicator of what we're going to see uh, in the IP world uh, over the next couple of years from everything we're hearing from the Department of Defense. Um, and then there were a few things that people didn't, I really have not focused on very much. I think the... Um, uh, so these are the sleeper provisions? The, yeah, I would sort say of, the sleeper I'm, ones. I use that are, in quotes, Joe. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's just things that uh, have not been a, a real a strong focus. We've got the language um, raising the micro-purchase threshold. Uh, now for the second year, now we're up to $10,000, which is a very significant threshold increase. Um, you've also That's got- That's for just for civilian yeah. agencies, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So why, and just, uh, I'm going to let you go on, but yeah. just why, what was the thinking the DOD was not raised to the um, 10,000? They're I, at 5,000. Right. right. And I haven't talked to the staff about that. Um, I think that when we got to the point of the conference, there was a lot of conversation with some of the committees, whether they were outside official conferees in the conference process or whether they were involved informally. And I think there was a lot of push and a lot of decision on the whole streamlining front to try to do that for the civilian agencies to see how it would work. 
Right. So, and, then, and then go from there. The OD right. is still the biggest spender. Right. So they are the biggest spender, right. So, and that, um, I just, your view, it's, it's the thing about that micro purchase threshold and then the simplified acquisition threshold, too, was raised. Right. It from also a, was raised, yeah. To 100, from 150 to 250. Right. And that's a very significant change because there, is, there are a lot of things that come along with that. Um, the small business reservation is part yes. of that. Yep. And you also get, however, waivers from things like um, uh, specialty metals and other kinds of things, which I know was a concern to certain segments of the industry. So that could have those could have some fairly significant changes in a couple of areas. Number one, we'll see what the actual impact is on some of these uh, congressionally mandated acquisition limits, um, and also I think where the value is there in some of that. Uh, for some of the smaller purchases, I think will be another issue. So, right. I just get your thought on this. Yeah. So, one of the things that that I that you know to me, that's that's uh, really people haven't focused on with regard to the micro purchase threshold and the simplified acquisition threshold being raised, is that's a huge streamlining, not just for open market, but also pre-existing multiple ward IDIQ right. contracts, whether right. it's schedules or GWAX or anything. It's just going to make it. It's going to streamline orders under those contracts. Right. right? Well, and, and that, I haven't looked at the numbers in terms of the number of contract actions that suddenly become freed up with that, but that could be very significant. So, I, I yeah, I think, and those things people haven't really focused on very much, but to me those may in the longer run be among the more significant changes in this bill. Yeah. So are there any other, like, management provisions or anything that were of interest? Well, I think if you look at Title IX, uh, Congress continues to wrestle with the mandated breakup of the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics Office and the continuing devolution of acquisition of oversight authority on major programs to the services. And there were some significant steps in this bill in that direction, which, again, people have not talked about Um that there's language in there that basically gives the service chiefs more explicit authority, uh, at spe- especially at later stages of the programs on trade-offs and things like that. And then, of course, you have much more uh, nuanced approach on the relationship between the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, and the Chief Management Officer and the Chief Information Officer in the department in terms of parsing out functions and oversight roles in a much more direct way than what we've seen over the past couple of years. Um, yesterday was the day when the official split occurred for the USDA TNL, and there was a memo that came out and started with greater specificity listing the functions and how they would be parsed out. It looked like the assistant, uh, the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment got the lion's share of the functional responsibilities, but then there were some real key elements that were kept under research and engineering. Um, I think this is going to be an ongoing debate, but it was very interesting to see the fact that you had the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment being reduced from a level two to a level three position, much more specific um, responsibilities. Uh, and going, so for folks yeah, listening, right. what does that mean? Well, it basically gives sort of a precedence, and if in the event of a disagreement, uh, which you know, who they're not really subordinates, but it sort of puts a pecking order in, in place. Um, and a lot of folks have worried, I've been among them, have worried about the integration of the process, at least from an OSD perspective, with this change for ensuring an effective handoff from the research and engineering side in terms of the oversight function on programs 
to the acquisition and sustainment function. Um, I think this is going to be an interesting sort of case of how that all gets worked out uh, as we go forward. But but again, there are much more specific changes in this bill with those four positions uh, than we've seen in the last couple of years. And so, and, and ref, ref, refresh the listeners' recollection the the you know, impetus for the split of. AT&L was? There were a couple of reasons that were proposed. One was the focus on innovation. Mm -hmm. I think that was the primary. The idea that by breaking out research and engineering and really building that up as a separate organization, you would have the focus that you wouldn't have when you have an undersecretary with this broad span of control and concern uh, that you had with the old office. And so I think that was one element. I think there were a couple of other things that I would also say. One is to sort of cut back on the proliferation of organizations that had grown around the uh, AT&L uh, office and, and also to further empower the services uh, in terms of their roles and responsibilities on major programs by, I guess, lessening the oversight burden coming from OSD. Okay. And so, and, you know, for the layperson dealing with uh, DOD, which is me, yeah, yeah, <laughs> trying right. to understand it. I mean, right. but you know, when you're when you're talking about greater um, discretion or authority at the service level in terms of requirements, right, and figuring out how does that all integrate when you're took looking at you know weapon systems that platforms that are going to go across you know the services. If you have a joint program, there is still um, the discretion of the Secretary of Defense to make a determination either A, to assign it to a specific service but with other service involvement, or B, to go and keep and retain that it's at, in some capacity at the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So they still have that, that authority, but I think one of the things, that, and we'll see how this plays out, do we see the same opportunities with joint programs under this new arrangement that maybe we saw under Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics? That will also be a function of how the Joint Chiefs of Staff review the requirements and make some more fundamental decisions. But I also think this undersecretary position will have an impact on that. Yeah. And I think it, it may create an environment we have, where we have, at least on not necessarily on the operations side, but on the acquisition side, you may have less uh, jointness solutions being proposed on programs in the future. Okay. St. John, we're at the break. So... When we come back, we'll continue to talk a little bit about um, the NDA. I want to pick your brain a little bit about Section 846 and you know, and that discussion, which I think is a very good discussion that all stakeholders are having around it. Um, and then also think about, well, now let's let's tee it up. What's how do you frame what's being framed for this year? You know, from a legislative and programmatic perspective with regard to the department. My guest today is John Etherton of Etherton and Associates, and you are listening to Off the Shelf. On Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is John Etherton of Etherton and Associates. And we're talking about, uh, what, as we always do, we've got uh, the leading expert on DOD acquisition policy procedures. I know, John, you, I know you're rolling your eyes, John, but um, you're the man. So, anyway, I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about um, Section 846, just generally. Um, you know, it is a process that's at a minimum, I mean, that could take up to three years just to get through the implementation. It's not later than most of the language, right? So they can do it faster. Um, but then you're potentially even talking beyond that to get the program actually up and running. So that's a fair amount of time. Um, your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, th- it's interesting to see how this idea has evolved uh, because Chairman Thornberry put this in his, initially in the draft bill that was introduced in April. Uh, it was a very uh, straightforward and I would say clean, you know, do not pass go kind of a go directly to, you know, something relatively quickly. Um, use commercial terms and conditions with some slight nod to some of the government unique requirements, but it was it was seen as a relatively fast-paced process that effectively would try to sideline a lot of the things that are, are in place. Uh, legally, very difficult, I think, you know, to sort that out. And as the as this idea has moved through the bill that was marked up by the House and then through the conference and then to this final solution. You've seen now a lot of these things that were concerns that people raised now coming back uh, into this process to see if there can be some way to move forward and reconcile all this. Um, So we have, a pro, as you said, a program now that if folks uh, take the time frames that are laid out in these phases could take three to four years. Uh, We're going to be in a very different world in three to four years, so I don't know know, how the existing – capabilities in the private sector will evolve themselves or, you know, what, what will be on offer. But I think it will at least make sh- sort of ensure that all of the government unique features of the current process are considered in this implementation and that at explicit decisions will be made as to how a lot of this get, gets applied without, you know, moving too quickly or in some people's minds. So I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, the real question in my mind at the end of the day is this a, at the end, if we have a commercial e-commerce portal that we're now using... Portals or multiple, portals, right, 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 right? a number right. of them, um, that are an alternative to the schedules, uh, where you don't have the administrative burden that the government would have to bear, um, and yet you do have all these mandated statutory requirements, can you come up with something that, that works uh, and gives people the same experience uh, that they have in their private lives whenever they buy something uh, through one of the portals that's available. So I think that, that, and, and what does that look like? I don't, I personally do not believe that 846 will be treated as the final word in its current form. I will not be surprised to see reconsideration of some of the requirements, some of the timeframes perhaps as we move forward, as people get more experience with this could be as early as the FY19 defense authorization bill that we'll be discussing later this year. So um, but I think these are issues that we need to deal with because, in general, we're seeing the commercial side come up with more and more ways of delivering capability, more and more innovative ways, and the government process is the government process. Is or are these other capabilities truly alternatives that we could incorporate in the government side to save money and, and, to, and to align the two processes and the experiences? So it's a good good discussion. It is a good discussion. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's, you know, at the end of the day, and I just wondered your thought, you know, this is this is a another potential tool in the toolbox mm-hmm. at the end of the day. That's what it is. I right. mean, it's like, it, you know, whether it's real truly, you know, a fundamental revolution in government procurement, I don't see it as that. I see it as a potential exploring a potential new tool in the toolbox that is different than the government's had done it before, and what does that all that mean? And I think right. those folks are looking at. To me, one of the big issues that I think I struggle with, and I think people, other people struggle with, thinking about it is there's is the multiplicity of commercial solutions that fit within the current definition. Right. And and, and it changes the whole dynamic of the discussion. 
as to who can play that 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 there are many many players who could theoretically play and how the government is going to deal with that i think it'd be a big um uh, you know a big challenge and that that if they can figure that out they could accelerate this well and I, there's another issue too that i think is going to come out of this and i think it's there are other pressures on this from other directions as well and that is people understand that we have these government unique requirements and many of them are statutorily mandated for reasons that are in some cases maybe lost in the midst of time they have a cost and i think one of the costs that we're seeing now is the barrier to being able to deploy some of these systems in the government market immediately or sooner rather than later. And so I think we're, this is going to force an examination of some of these requirements and the costs associated with them in ways that we haven't seen before that will force people to rethink, I think, a lot of things across the board. I see it in this area and I see it in a lot of other areas that the agencies are currently looking at, sort of a general sense of impatience with the impacts of some of these things on the acquisition process and what can be done and what it prevents us from taking advantage of. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I have to like respond to that a little bit, John, just to, that, you know, just listening to, I was at the public meeting at GSA and the point about multiple types of solutions, people can make conscious decisions whether they want to comply with government unique terms or not, or even whether they want to do business based on commercial terms in a commercial transaction. There's capabilities out there that that we heard a lot about through the day that provide the ability to, you know, develop business rules that, whether it's software or whatever, that can efficiently, effectively apply those rules those business rules that the government has, whether it's Trade Agreements Act or whatever, to the to these processes theoretically, and that's a commercial practice mm-hmm, out there. Mm-hmm. And I think the my impression is the government is sort of hearing that for the first time, and they're sort of like the reaction is sort of wow, these are things areas the the capabilities that you know we weren't quite you know familiar with, and it has a potential. Those capabilities have a potential being game changer. Right. Well, and that may be that may get us out of this binary. Yes. Uh, mindset, yeah. which has been in place forever. I mean, I've been involved in acquisition, working these issues for over 35 years, and that's always been the issue that, you know, it's a binary choice. Yeah. And maybe now it's, maybe it's not. Maybe it's these, these in the context of these commercial solutions, they can actually be embodied in a way that don't create, don't allow this to be a barrier. Right. Um, so that'll be a different conversation. But I think, I think one way or another, these kinds of uh, approaches are going to force conversations around that and the differences in the way the government does business versus the way the private sector does business. Um, and, w- you know, if there are costs associated or if they can be accommodated, but I think there's going to be a real interest on the government side in trying to take advantage of the speed, that, yes. that, that at least the perceived speed that they see that these solutions can provide. Right, or, yeah, that exactly. And, I mean, you know, all... You, you raise all boats. You mean is if the government ex- examines its own platforms and things it has in place, you know, to your point, I think there's a there's a great appeal to the user experience and how people are able to, you know, that's 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 a part of commercial business, right? right? That, you know, um, that's that's attractive, and the government either needs to think figure out how to leverage that commercial capability um, or across the board or. Um, y- or, or somehow incorporate it into 
platforms it already has in place, that, I guess, you know, right. just thinking about it. So, Well, if you read the National uh, Security Strategy document, the summary document, the discussion in there about processes and business processes, the main theme that I take from that is time. Um, that we want time is money, right? Time is, time is money, and time is relevance. Yes, that's and, yeah. And, and the the, con, the discussion in there, and I can't remember exactly what the wording of the sentence was, but it's the idea of getting things in the field during the time period when the technologies are relevant or the capabilities are relevant. Is is that what relevance window is becoming a much more conscious factor in the decision making. Um, and I think that's part of what this conversation is about, too. And that's it, you know, and is that why, you know, over the years we've seen this, like looking at, you know, you know, moving outside the FAR process right. to, to deal with that relevance and that time issue? Is that- uh, well, I think that's one thought. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if you look in another theme that has come across from the congressional activity in the last three years is expanding the use of other transactions agreements. And I, for R&D efforts in particular, and if you look at the language, which some, that, that, that section in Title VIII, that there's some language which, you know, to use your term, some sleeper language in there that really basically says this is an explicit, uh, validated approach for our research and development beyond contracts and grants, and we want to favor this approach in, in the earlier phases of uh, technology development and make it sort of the default approach rather than using a FAR 15 or a FAR-based process at all. So that, I think, is you know part of that whole discussion. It's interesting, the Section 809 panel, which we can talk about in a little bit, they have said publicly that they're trying to figure out, is there a way we can do a FAR-light process, which in, involves a lot of the government protections and unique mm-hmm. nature of all that, and at the same time achieve the same things that the OTA process is trying right. to achieve Relevancy, right time, now. all right. that. Exactly. Right. So, John, I, I, wow, we ended up spending most of that segment on Section 846. Funny how that happens, right? Uh, but when we come back, we'll we'll start we'll we'll fr- we'll talk about you know how things are framed for this year, what we can expect, you know, whether on this on the hill, we can, and also at DoD as well. My guest today is John Etherton of Etherton Associates, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is John Etherton of Etherton Associates. And we've been talking about the NDAA, uh, last year's NDAA, uh, some uh, Department of Defense reorganization stuff in the in uh, the first segment as well, and Section 846, just uh, a lot of that in the last segment. And now we're going to turn to talking about what's on tap for this year and John on the Hill and we can talk about at DOD as well. But first, let's start with uh, the Hill. Okay, sure. Um, I think that what we've seen over the last three years, uh, if you look at the acquisition initiatives that were taken, have primarily come from Congress. Uh, Historically, there's, you know, this pendulum will swing back and forth. I think this year we're going to see, start to see the pendulum swing back to where a lot of the initiatives and the areas of interest and things that really are going to drive the conversation this year are going to come out from outside of Congress. Um, I think we've seen some staff changes on the Hill with some of the people on both House and Senate Armed Services Committee where people have moved from the committee to the administration. Um, You've seen some other things that have happened there. I think that this year you're going to see more coming from things like the Section 809 panel report, which was just released a couple days ago. 
I think the reorganization. Like the is that a draft? Is the draft? Is it the interim report? No, no. Uh, what, what is, is it? it? Is volume one? Okay. Of the final report. Okay. Uh, two more volumes to come. Uh, it is a uh, number of issues that they covered in that report, with very detailed line in line out language recommendations, which will give it some motive power, um, and that will uh, I think drive a lot of some of the discussion up on the hill. Um, you also have the Section Eight Thirteen panel, which is looking at intellectual property. The expectation there is that they will be finished with their product sometime in the next couple months. If it comes out early enough, that will also be, I think, a driver of framing a discussion around intellectual property. You have the department with the national security strategy. I think I expect to see from the comments that we've gotten from uh, um, Secretary Lord and others that we're going to see a much more um, robust set of DOD proposals on acquisition this year that'll line up with the national security strategy, whether they come officially or whether they come sort of through other channels. I think they're formulating some things that they would like to see uh, that, again, dealing with the streamlining issue, dealing with this issue of time and what can be done to speed up processes. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot more external things coming into the committees this year from outside that will drive mainly drive the conversation. I think another area that's related to Section 846 that we just talked about is Secretary Mattis's October 5th memo, where he basically has charged the uh, activities in the department to identify commercial solutions and other commercial uh, uh, ideas that can be applied on a business process basis in the department to free up money for the warfighters so that they can shift more resources into lethality in other areas. And that has really stimulated a lot of thinking in the, in the private sector, I think folks are looking at various things that they might have on offer that might fill that uh, uh, requirement, and and the department seem you know is very interested also in looking at this as well. So I think that's another area uh, that may drive a lot of the conversation that we see this year on the Hill uh, in the context of the authorization bill. So that Mattis memo and trans- looking for commercial solutions, and I just you know think you know to try to reduce cost, right? Right. That so the money, the resources go to the warfighter as opposed to the sort of back office operations, right? exactly. Right? So how does that, trans? do you think that will translate into sort of acquisition strategies? I mean, you know, or, you know, that's, that's, that's you, know, you can figure out your requirements, um, which is the key thing right. fundamentally. But then we were talking about relevance, you know, in the last segment and timing and how long it takes and things like that. And, and even, you know, the strategy, do you do multiple award contracts? Do you do single award contracts for some of this capability? What, what, do, you, what do you think may happen? Well, this? I think that there always is an attractive model to say, well, if we got this one thing that'll work, let's just do that. But then I think historically that, you know, people have found issues with that approach in terms of keeping technology innovation and, you know, having just competitive, competitive pressure, competitive right? pressure in general on terms and conditions and things like that. So I think there's always those trade-offs that folks, you know, won't be looking at. Um, but I think that to me, what I see is sort of this idea of sort of make or buy. Are we going to have a system that is essentially going to be internally supported, which takes for granted uh, internal organization and process organization? Or are we going to take something that may exist from the outside or some things, some approaches, different approaches, a menu of things, which may cause us to have to change our internal organization, uh, may change our internal processes, 
but are things that we, we might not have to spend the money to support. And I think, again, it's the same arguments around that we had on, with the e-commerce portals. I think that's going to be a front and center uh, conversation uh, this year. And then, again, how do we adjust to government unique things and other kinds of mm-hmm. things in the process uh, and, and sort of query all that. So I think that's all going to be uh, a, a big discussion. I think to the extent that people say, but for this requirement, we could do this, or but for that requirement, we could do this, I think then that, then that shifts to the Hill because so much of that is statutorily mandated. And what about um, along those lines, you know, if you're trying to, you know, squeeze efficiencies out of like sort of the back office operations, you know, this, you know, commercial, you know, and taking advantage of commercial technologies obviously got to be a priority. But um, what about like shared services or across? I mean, how, I mean, I think about like DHA's reorganization, right? Right. And with, you know, the consult, sort of the consolidation of the management, I use that in quotes, of, you know, the service hospitals and things like that under that organization. You know, do you see a potential for... I think to the extent that those shared services proposals are viewed as well-formed, I think they become part of the conversation. But I, but it, it sort of leads me to what I see behind a lot of this, that if people don't have a little bit of a different attitude, it's going to be hard to see this changing, being the game changer that people want. And that is a lot of people look at, at a capability and they say, I want that. Why can't yes. I do that, Right. I think another question that's related, but it's equally important, is why are things the way they are? Why is this process working the way that it does? And and I think it's easy to say things like, well, it's culture or this or that, which are kind of easy and not analytically very informative. I think what you really need to look at is, you know, if you don't understand the forces that, that sort of led you to the solution that you have now, it's very difficult to break the equilibrium and to you know disrupt it in a way that allows you to bring some of these solutions online. Things that look relatively easy starting out because they make so much sense to everybody, there really may be some deep underlying reasons why those things haven't arisen naturally in the current process. So you really have to understand that. If you don't understand those forces, it's going to be very difficult to transition this, the processes to this end state that you're looking at. Right. It's, it's, um, and to me, what you just said is you got to understand the history right. behind what you know, why you are where you are in order to be able to, to, to change it. Otherwise, right, exactly. you can just con- continue down the same path. Yeah, I think, and I go back to something that uh, Paul Francis from GAO said at a House hearing a few years ago, and he, you know, and looking at the acquisition process, which is a little bit of a different topic, but he basically said it's a process that it is in equilibrium, uh, given all the different forces that play into it. And breaking that equilibrium and moving to a different end state uh, you really have to understand all the forces that play into that. And so I think that, I mean, I have over the years heard a lot of conversations around streamlining and a lot of other things and aspirations that people have for the process. But I think the starting point for a lot of that is to really understand why are things the way they are today. Um, and I and I have to say that the people that are there that have come into the department in the new administration are people who should be well-placed to understand that and ask those kinds of questions. So this may be the time when we achieve greater success in this area, especially given the offerings that we're seeing coming out of the commercial side. Well, John, you know what? We're already up on the uh, last break. My guest today is John Etherton of Etherton and Associates. And when we come back, we'll continue to talk about uh, 
you know, commercial uh, solutions, shared services, where the government is going more generally, too. We'll talk a little bit on the civilian side. Um, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is John Etherton of Etherton & Associates. And we've been talking about, um, you, know, you know, it is February in 2019. We've gotten through uh, the, the uh, 2018 NDAA and what that means and took a little bit, bit of a look at the crystal ball and talked about the department. And, you know, at the end of the last segment, John, we were talking about shared services and, you know, looking to commercial solutions to reduce costs, uh, to provide more resources to the warfighter. Um, and, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you just, you know, the synergy potentially between the shared services type model and commercial solutions. And that, you know, today, right, we, we were talking on the break a little bit, just a cloud is one example that people are used to, you know, Rightly or wrongly, right? You know, their their data, their information is being managed by a third party, or, right. or you know, and and protected by a third party, right? And that's a whole cultural shift that the government is trying to take advantage of. Can you know? And in the shared services, you're counting on a third party, whether it's a commercial provider or commercial provider through a department that's providing HR services, whatever, to to leverage that, so you don't have to have your own infrastructure in place. Do you see that? Synergy is you know, having great potential moving forward? I think it's got great potential, but I think we need to recognize that there's been a policy of shared services in place very explicitly since, I think, 2009, 2010. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and yeah. we have made some progress, uh, but I think there's still, I think everybody would recognize that there's a lot more to be done. Um, it gets back to my earlier comment about sort of understanding why haven't we made more progress? And what are the forces that sort of at work? And I guess I look at things like what are the incentives for the individual agencies, for the players to move to a shared services model versus other incentives that they may have to either make that a lower priority or, you know, focus on other things. I think you get issues around security and concerns about control uh, and having alternatives and all those sorts of things. So I think it's a great direction to be moving, and I think we are going to move in that direction on a continuing basis. But I do think that there are a lot of forces at work that we need to recognize that may be obstacles to, to moving as quickly and, and as thoroughly as people might want to do that. So, so um, well, on that, that listening to your response, I just I thought about I go back to you mentioned the Mattis memo of last year, last October. And doesn't a lot of this boil down to, you know, leadership management, right? right? You know, it yeah. starts at the top, you know, with that kind of communication in that direction and then it's a responsibility of the man management you know literally um to create the incentives in the organization and the performance measures to to reward you know the result that you want and right. measure the efficiencies gained or not gained right well and i think but i yes absolutely but i also think you have to recognize the existing incentives that are in places that are not just a matter of enunciating a policy. You've got incentives that come with the way we dole out the money and the resources and the budgeting process, and the way that's worked, especially over the last couple of years with the delay in getting appropriations and, you know, the impact of that. I think that's created, you know, some incentives. I think that there are, um, uh, you know, incentives that come from the oversight 
community mm-hmm. in terms of the way they view the process and how they view, um, you know, excellence and whatever. Um, and again, all of that has to be aligned with the goals and the uh, and the expectations of the leadership for people to get true success. And I think to overlook that and and not take that into consideration. Um, you you may get some success, but I think you really are sort of undercutting yourself if you don't really understand all of those forces and how they're working on people's behavior and decision making. Yeah, well, that, and so you you brought so you've got the structural challenges, and the and the process challenges, right? With right. The delays and budgets and things like that, and just the way the money is doled out is a structural right. impediment, right? right? And on the oversight side, um, you know, I guess it's it strikes me. Uh, your thoughts on this, that, you know, and back in the dark ages when I was in government, um, it was, you know, the the oversight community played a role appropriately, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they were, it seemed like co- there was more of the idea of like, okay, well, we will help you in a sense to articulate and identify the issues and where you need to make changes as opposed to, I mean, I, mean, I think it's more of a gotcha Right, uh, gotcha environment now. Absolutely, much yeah. more a critical environment right. rather than and trying to show your value as opposed to trying to move the mission forward. Is that right. fair? Right. I, I, you know, that in the more extreme cases, I think is definitely something that does arise. I mean, I go back and look at the changes that we did in the mid '90s with the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, and we basically said to, and there was a lot of cheerleading on this, at least, and I was a person on the outside, not in the workforce or anything. But there was a lot of cheerleading from the top about being more entrepreneurial, uh, taking greater risks and doing all those sorts of things. Well, I don't think people felt that they were actually being rewarded and measured on any of those things that the leadership was saying were the, you know, the values that they wanted to see. They were still seeing the same compliance sort of with processes and things as being the the way people were being judged. And I think it undercut, you know, the whole effort. Uh, in that direction. So I think, again, you need to understand how these things operate as incentives. It's not enough to simply say, well, we're going to start this new policy and we're going to move over here. If everything institutionally and in your process creates the incentives in the other direction, you're not going to get very far. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, just it's, that's so hard to change. Right? I mean, well, I, again, I think it's, it is hard to change because again, you have this equilibrium and you have these different forces and interests. But I think the way to change it is to make it be more explicit and visible and identify these things and the costs associated with them, then you can start to have a conversation. Yeah. And I, it's, that's why going back to section 846, I think that will be part of the conversation. Right, the cost and benefits right. And, right, and, and all the different stakeholders and provisions that you have to deal with. Speaking of H46, um, just in a couple minutes, um, Left, uh, you know, the role of when we were talking about shared services, I mean, GSA is essentially a shared services organization, right? right? right. Whether it's assisted acquisition services or it's government-wide contracting platforms, which, you know, streamline processes. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on, you know, GSA in the coming year and where and how it's positioned? Well, I thought it was interesting that GSA really embraced this um, e-portal e-commerce portal concept early uh, and, and, you know, and which something that could be considered as an alternative or even a replacement for the schedules which they control. So I think they, I, I see that the GSA leadership at least understanding the, the value of moving in some of these shared services models that they may not own 100%. 
Um, the issue that I've always, you know, I you hear a number of different things with GSA. The fee issue was something that people used to talk about. I thought one of the more interesting issues from the other agency user perspective was the headquarters concern about lack of business intelligence, that they had people who were you know, defaulting to using the schedules for a number of things, and it was very difficult for them to understand that from a leadership perspective where their agency budget monies were really flowing and how they were being used. And that was a motivation for bringing things, you know, back in or, I mean, in, in the Seaport E example that the Navy set up, that was that was their primary motivator was to capture the information about where their money was flowing. Um, I think we now have tools in place that would allow for that and, and allow for the agencies to, you know, retain that business intelligence and still take advantage of these shared services. So I think that, you know, uh, I, I see a future for an organization like GSA as they, you know, to assess these models and the value of these models and to basically be a central location for, for a great deal of purchasing activity for the agencies. Right. I think, you know, to your point, I, uh, you know, the uh, Section 846 is a big opportunity for GSA, right. you know. Their challenge with OMB is to, you know, and with all with with all the stakeholders to figure it out, right? Right, right. And what makes sense in the government context. But I, what I'm hardened by is the fact that they're the ones, ha- you know, sort of in the lead on this, because I think if this personally, if this were just a DOD thing, it would not get, it would not be the right conversation. I think having it sort of centralized around GSA and their processes is where it belongs, because I think they're the ones to really explore this. And see what the art of the possible is, and what you know where some of the issues are with this, because I think then we get a government-wide benefit. Right, and you know, and that's closer to OMB too, right? Right, exactly. right rather, yeah, exactly. Um, so, well, John, you know what? We're already. I mean, it's already. This segment's already gone. I can't believe the show goes so fast when you're on. It's uh, been a great conversation. Um, any final thoughts on, you know, in particular, if you saw one thing potentially in legislation this year on a procurement side, what would it be? I I don't, I can't, you know, point to anything. I, I do think that people ought to look at the Section 800, 809 panel report carefully because, as I said earlier, one of the things that really gives it its motive power is the fact that the, the language actually is provided in the report for line in, line out changes to statute. So I think that's going to get a lot of uh of attention, uh, we'll see. Remains to be seen how much of it will end up being uh, carried in the FY19 NDA. So that's that's one area uh, that I expect. And I also think that the experience of the reorganization at OSD uh, is going to also drive a lot of the conversation that we're going to see this year. Okay. Well, John, thanks for for being on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. You. Always right. a pleasure. Right. My guest today has been John Etherton of Etherton Associates, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio at 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher 
And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.